Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we were talking this morning about this idea of 501c3 and socialism. And and uh, these different people have an idea of what they think the church is. And what's this kingdom of God? They say, they love to say, oh, the kingdom of God is within you. Or they think it's where you go when you die. And Jesus was explicit about the fact that uh, the kingdom of God is for the living. It's not for the dead. He said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. I'm going to give it to another that will bear fruit. And he complained about those people who had the kingdom of God at that time, which was supposedly the Pharisees who were sitting in the seat of Moses. And he said that what they were doing was making the word of God to none effect. That's a big deal, making the word of God to none effect. How are you doing that? Well, it was their Corbin. And we have articles on that that explain exactly what that Corbin is. People don't like that explanation all the time. They want to disavow that ex- explanation, even argue against the, the truth of it. But their reality is they have no argument against it. And, and actually, I I shouldn't say sell them because there are a lot of people that have this idea that that the Levites were not responsible for the welfare of society. And, of course, in one sense, they weren't. It was the people who were responsible for the welfare of society. But they were responsible through the Levites. Because religion, and we see this right in the New Testament, the religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. The widows and orphans and people that, whose family, you know, dies out or they... They don't have family. Family is supposed to take care of your needs. Your children take care of their elderly. And um, the elderly and the parents take care of the children. And they take care of each other. And cousins and and grandfathers and uncles and all. They all work to support the family. So that the family continues. It's a very simple, natural concept. It's been around in nature since the beginning of time. Even fungus has that idea where fungus actually, fungi will actually sacrifice themselves so that the other fungi can reproduce and spread the fungi to another place. (laughs) So, I mean, if fungi could do it, we ought to be able to do it. But the family doesn't depend on family anymore. They depend upon governments. The government's supposed to take care of my parents. The government's supposed to educate my children. The government's supposed to guarantee my health care. And the government only does that, the governments of the world, only do that by forcing the contributions of the people to provide you with welfare. And and they they don't force enough contributions, so they usually borrow against your future, which puts you into debt, which makes it so you can't just say, well, I'm going to do like the Declaration of Independence says. I'm going to dissolve the bands which have connected me and I'm going to start a new government because you're in debt. You're a surety for debt of the United States government. You can't just get out. I mean, you can go to another government or another place somewhere in the world because every place is covered and they're in debt. Now, New Zealand's in debt. I mean, somebody was talking about billionaires. What is there supposed to be? 10,000 billionaires in the United States or something like that or... uh yeah, I, I can't remember exactly how many billionaires there are. There used to be being a millionaire was a big thing. But uh, anyway, whatever it is, millions or billions, it doesn't matter. They're not as rich as you think because just the basic federal debt is over $50,000 per person. So you have to subtract that from, you know, the way you figure out a millionaire is net assets minus what you owe. And what you end up with is what you're worth. The problem with that is, uh, uh, which is quite a bit uh, more than most people realize. Because it isn't just your, uh, I was going to look up here and see if I have the uh, uh, some of these statistics. Uh, debt, the national debt, 
is $21.6 trillion. It, that's a huge amount. It, you know, there's like $15.8 trillion intergovernmental holdings, $5.8 trillion for a total national debt of $21.6 trillion. You owe that if you're a citizen of the United States. And if you're in Australia, you owe a debt there too. So there is no escape from this uh, debt uh, because you want to get out of the system. No, you're still going to be held responsible for that debt. The kingdom of God is an alternative to that. Because, and, you know, and I explained this years ago when I first wrote the book Covenants of the Gods to try to explain the contractual nature of government. And I was talking this morning, I don't know if I ever finished the part about uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave them to Peter. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So if you're in debt on earth, you're in debt in heaven. And you say, oh, Christ paid my debt. Well, Christ died that you might be saved. But if you don't forgive others, neither will you be forgiven. So you're not forgiven because Christ died. I mean, the potential for being forgiven because Christ died is there. But you have to forgive others or his father will not forgive you. And so how do you forgive others? Well, you can't desire benefits from a bankrupt system that's offering you those benefits by borrowing against the future of your children and your neighbor's children. Because you will curse your children. And uh, and that's what's happened is you've cursed your children, you've cursed your neighbor's children with debt, and you've got the president, I guess, in another, let's see, 12 days, he's going to shut down the government again unless he gets his wall. Uh, I shouldn't say his wall, the wall that people want to protect the borders. All this is, there is no solution in that politics. There's the only solution in the politics of God. In the politics of God, you have to care about the people as much as you care about yourself. And you have to you have to come together according to the way of Christ. That's what Christianity was called. And start caring about others, hearing their needs, their plights, their difficulties, so that you can be heard by God. So we talked, and I said I would talk this afternoon a little bit about uh, the rejection that we feel. Everybody wants to belong to a church. Because it gives them a feeling of belonging. They want to belong to a country. They want this. Uh, they want to belong to a group. I mean, even the uh, fascists or the anti-fascists, they all want to belong to a group and they get this feeling. This is what ident- identity politics does, that you you identify with a group and then that gives you a sense of identity. In reality, what you want is personal identity. You have to, in order to have that, you need to look at yourself. See, a lot of this identity politics comes out of the fact that you look at other people. You know, I identify with being black and oppressed by whites. Or I identify with being Orientals or or Indians or some sort of group, Mexicans. You know, I I know somebody who works uh, in a business that has lots of people from Mexico working in it. And uh, it's against the rules, policies of that company. To say anything derogatory towards another race. And that's, that's common throughout the United States to have rules like that in a government, in, in a corporation. The problem that, uh, the individual usually sees in their company is not white people saying derogatory things about Mexicans. It's Mexicans from one group, uh, well, from one area of Mexico complaining about Mexicans from another area of Mexico. Because they're very, you know, Mexicans, generally speaking, and I have to speak in generalities, I don't like putting people under these labels, but generally they have, you know, family is a really important thing to them. And there's a lot of really strong families. It's not that way with everybody, but there's a lot of really strong families in Mexico. There's also uh, communities, towns, there's real strong union in your town, your village, your community. But where it breaks down is in the next community, the next village, 
not so much. They don't care about the same. See the same thing in Ethiopia and many other countries and cultures where if you're a part of this group, you're great. We'll we'll bend over backwards to help you. We'll do all kinds of things to help you. But if you're one of those people, one of those other groups, then then they don't want to help you as much. So this idea of belonging to the group. And being rejected by the group. You don't want to be, you want to do anything that would cause you to be rejected by the group. Um, uh, Lindsay Shepard, she considered herself a leftist. She considered herself, uh, you know, uh, socialist, uh, progressive socialist. And she was just felt like that's where she belonged. And then she was attacked by the, Officers in the, you know, the people in power in the college unfairly attacked, in her opinion, my opinion as well. And uh, she stood her ground and was persecuted. And she, you know, she'd recorded the conversation and made that available. And and uh, people just hated her and tried to get her into trouble and tried to condemn her and all this stuff. But the people on the right who she did not support, supported her right to free speech. And so that they they knew she's a socialist. She's, they knew she was on the left. But they didn't care. They, they came to her defense because they consider the right to free speech to be paramount. They, they knew that she disagreed. That's okay with them. They, they weren't going to put her down for that. So they were, they were more receptive to her, more supportive to her in her time of need than her own supposed identity group. So she felt that rejection from the identity group. She could compensate because there was another group that was liking her. And then now she's gotten to the point where she can't hardly identify with the left because they're so bigoted, so prejudiced, so unfair and their approach to anybody that they disagree with. And this, so she feels this rejection. And so that, that's just one example. There's lots of examples of rejection. Uh, I know a woman who was like in her 80s, almost 90 years old, and she was having certain pains. And she was talking with a minister who understands how spiritual issues will manifest themselves in your body in physical ways. And it's not always, it doesn't mean that every time you have a pain in your left side that it means that you were rejected or you have a problem with rejection. But there are certain things that telegraph over. We're very complex uh, creatures and you can't just put whole groups in this, you know, say, oh, whenever this has happened, this applies. It just doesn't work that way because we're all different. You know, things are Organized with a certain amount of similarity, but also a certain amount of uniqueness for each of us. But it comes down to the fact that she was having certain pains in her body. And they didn't know what it was. And this preacher, who is familiar with some of the metaphysical realities of spirit versus the flesh. So that actual spiritual problems will be manifested in a physical way. He said, well, do you have a, asking questions, do you have a problem with rejection? Did somebody reject you when you were very young? And she said, no, she doesn't remember that. And in the course of the conversation in between her and her husband and this individual, it came out that she did have a feeling of rejection when I think it was her father died. And uh, she was like two years old. And, uh, that was, when you're two years old, and you have a parent, and then the parent disappears, you can translate that disappearance into the fact that the parent abandoned you. That was actually, with her, it was more the, better described, not rejection, but abandonment. Often, they kind of overlap, because if somebody abandons you, they reject the responsibility of taking care of you. Well, her father didn't abandon her. He died. But to a two-year-old, she... And I've seen this with elderly people whose spouse dies. 
And you, all of a sudden you get to a certain point and you hear this anger coming out where they're angry at their spouse and uh for leaving them. And, you know, I had to remind them, I said, they didn't leave you, they died. They They didn't want to die, they didn't want to leave you. And then they kind of came to grips with that, but they... There, the anger was still in there. And see, this is a part of searching your own soul. I mean, you wouldn't think so. This woman began to ponder this idea of the fact that she still harbored resentment for the fact that her father was gone out of the picture. It wasn't really his fault, but she resented the absence, the, the fact that he was there and then he wasn't there. She resented that. She had to forgive that feeling, forgive that the personification of being abandoned, which it really wasn't an abandonment, but that's the way it was received and perceived at the time for a two-year-old child. She had to forgive that. When she she was pondering this and, and kind of meditating upon it, she suddenly began to realize that it really wasn't her father's fault and she needed to forgive her father and she went through the mental process of doing this and she discovered, she felt this warm feeling come over and the pain went away. The pain that was the that the preacher had associated with abandonment went away when she went through the process of forgiving, even grieving her father's demise because he didn't want to die. He didn't want to go away. He didn't want to leave her. Even if he did want to leave her and he did abandon her, which many fathers have done, abandon their kids. They don't, they have no idea what they're setting in motion in that child by abandoning their family. It can create emotional scars. It can make connections in your, your psychic mental capacity as well as your spiritual DNA. That will set you up for failure later on. You you don't even realize it. You don't even have to think it out. But sometimes when you're made aware of these things through circumstances or through somebody talking to you or a combination of the two. Usually it's a combination of the two. Or you see it in somebody else, another child or maybe your own children where you can't be there for them. And you're realizing you're repeating history. Your dad wasn't there for you and now you're not there for your children. So when you come to grips with these things, you can see deeper in to yourself, into your spiritual self. And then you have a choice in that spiritual self to forgive, to be generous, to, you know, to allow that. And when you do that, it brings healing into you. Now, this is really hard for a lot of people to grasp. But this is, this is the key, one of the keys to the kingdom. You know, you've, you've been exploited, you've been taxed, you, you've had things that you worked for and produced and they're, they're taken away. You look at the paycheck and the government really takes a bite and you resent the government or they pass a law or they, they throw you in jail because you wanted to smoke something or whatever. And it creates resentment in you towards them. You want your power back. You want your liberty back. You have to forgive them. And I'll give you another, I'll go off track a little bit. The people who are triggered all the time. That, you know, somebody says something. Somebody actually wrote a book. It's a fictional book about a place that doesn't exist. People that don't live. And it's, it's in one of these fantasy, fictional, uh, kind of dragons and swords and, and a sort of book, I didn't read the whole book, but I just saw the cover. And she, the author was a woman. She was born in China. She raised in Peking. She came to America. And this is one of her debut books. She's done some other writing, I guess. And it was going to be published. And somebody read it who is a author. They actually call him a person of color. P.O.C. <laughs> She's Chinese. She you know, but I guess that they call that a person of color, and somebody else who is a person of color, who's a writer of color, uh, he's he reads her book and he says he takes offense because in her book she talks about slavery, not based on color, 
of the skin. It was based on some other criteria in the book. And she's talking about the way people accept slavery and abuse slavery and use slavery. And it's just part of the plot of the book. But it wasn't based on color. It wasn't based on race. And this, he said that somehow he was interpreting this as attack on Negro slavery in the United States. Uh, way back in the 1800s. Because it was slavery not based on race. And so he created a, a Twitter storm that was uh, where people were attacking her as her book was now racist. Didn't mention race. You know, it mentioned slavery, but their slavery wasn't based on race. It was based on other criteria. But now she's under attack so much so that she postponed the publishing of her book and issued apologies. Because she wasn't writing from slavery history in the United States. She was writing from her perspective from China. They don't have black slavery in China. They just have slavery. It's not based on race. It's based on economics or, or you know, what village you're from or just whatever. And so she was basing the book and they attacked her for it. Just mercilessly attacked this young uh, girl author for it so that she postponed the writing of her book. It's just absurd. If you go back in history, if you have any knowledge of history, most slavery is not based on race. Most slavery throughout the history of mankind is just based on, you know, we conquered you, you're our slave. You know, we, we, you know, the, the Romans conquered the Greeks. Everybody owned a Greek slave. They, they were, they were often teachers, they were often well-treated, they often ran businesses, but they were slaves because they were conquered. And the same thing with the, the you know, the Celts who were conquered and the Britons who were conquered and the Gauls who were conquered. They were often made slaves. The reality is what I see often, most of the people that are triggered about slavery believe in slavery. They actually advocate slavery. They don't call it slavery. They call it socialism. <laughs> and uh, they want to enslave people who produce more than them to have to take what they produce and give to them. And that's slavery. They're taking away the labor of those individuals, the effort of those individuals who've worked and strived and uh, sacrificed in order to produce a business that actually makes them money. Most businesses go out of business. It's quite a risk to start your own business. I know people who started their businesses and they're out there working before most people even think about wake up, waking up. They're already working. They'll have hours of work done before most people even eat their breakfast. And they do this day in, day out. They're out uh, burning oils, uh, you know, and, and light at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. I was just talking to somebody who's taken on a new job. And there are no hours to the job. You just have to get things done. Well, they're, they're still working. They're, they're in the office at five in the morning. They're still working at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, and they put that, in, and this isn't even for their own business. It's just for another job that doesn't have hours. And they're just paid a salary. But they want to do a good job, so they're putting in that extra effort. Many other people who 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 couldn't run a business, because they won't put in that extra effort, that extra sacrifice. They've Somebody else has taken a risk to establish a business, and they get to incur the profit. This is capitalism. This is what, you know, the squirrel that goes out and gathers the nuts, the ants who gather food for the winter, they, you know, in the story of the grasshopper and the ants, the way the story really ends, the ants eat the grasshopper. (laughs) That's the way it is. They, you know, Disney made the story and they all start playing music together and, you know, because, you know, and what was he singing about when he was singing all summer and they warned him that he needed to put up food because the winter was coming? He says, oh, the world owes me a living. And, but the ants in the real story identify with this work ethic and the, the uh, grasshopper just identified with what pleasured him at the time. 
He didn't, he didn't think about preparation or improvement. So anyway, so throughout history, society has created these groups, tribes, clans, and they take care of one another because society is born from that and go on and live. So I talked about rejection this morning that the feeling, the same nervous system in you, which is a shadow of the spiritual reality that pre-existed your physical nervous system. There is a pre-existing spiritual existence for everything physical. And so your physical pattern that has been developed over the centuries, passed down to you through DNA and genetic and epigenetic DNA, creates you as you are physically. But you're in the process of this creation all the time. So the spiritual presence of your spiritual mind, your soul, is affecting your body right now. The health of your body, the, the well-being of your body. And so as you, uh, as this all takes place, the choices you make, the spiritual choices you make will alter you physically. And when you feel physical rejection in the physical realm because you're rejected by your tribe, your clan, your family. I mean, it always hurts worse if your family rejects you. The the signals that cause you that emotional pain travel down the same dendrites and nervous system that physical pain would travel down. As if I hit you upside the head and cause pain that signal of pain will follow those same nerve endings. So if you took something to numb the pain, alcohol, uh, amphetamines, uh, some sort of narcotic, it will numb the same nerve endings and give you relief. So you can actually take Tylenol for depression. But what I want to talk to you about is how to overcome that depression, that feeling of rejection, that feeling of abandonment, without taking any chemical. Just simply by rearranging, thinking, you know, rewiring your mind and your reactions and your emotions another way. If if something somebody says upsets you, then what's actually taking place is that you are a slave to them. If what they do causes you pain and anxiety, triggers you, you're their slave. That's actually what's happening. Is they, they, if, if their words diminish your happiness, make you upset or angry, then you are allowing them to enslave you emotionally, and literally, uh, spiritually, you could be becoming enslaved to them. So how do you prevent that? It has to do with a state of mind. We often talk about the states and governments and all that stuff. But the first state was your state of mind, the state of your spirit, the state of your flesh. So if we attend to that state of mind which will and spirit, which will attend to the state of your flesh and the state of your emotional well-being, then you will you will be free. You will be set free. This is the keys of the kingdom. If you're binding yourself to physical realities, what people say, what people do, if you're binding yourself to those things, then you're becoming a slave to those things. So how do you loosen yourself from those things? Well, that's what we'll talk about when we return to keys of the kingdom in a moment. So when Christ talked about, here's the keys of the kingdom, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven, what you loose on earth is loose in heaven, we often are explaining how the contractual nature of government can cause you to be bound to that government. And it will control your actions. It will control what you get to keep, what you don't get to keep. It will control your happiness. And it may even control your life. It may take your life away from you. At least part of the life away from you. But it goes deeper than that. These are, these are the results of spiritual realities in creation that most people 
uh, are somewhat oblivious to. And so what Christ is really showing you is other ways in which you can become bound. Hate can bind you. Resentment, unforgiveness, they can bind you. The same as charity and love can bind you. But the ropes are different. When you're charitable, when you're loving, when you're sacrificing for others, you're creating different kinds of bonds. Bonds that allow, uh, that have elasticity to them, that allow you freedom still. But then now you will go out of your way to help somebody because they helped you. And I've given hundreds of examples throughout history, through my own life, where this happens. And this, of course, is why Jesus is talking in these parables, showing you that, you know, the prodigal son. He leaves. He abandons his father. He goes off. He says, I don't want to do it the way my dad did it. And I take my inheritance and he goes and squanders it and he ends up in a bad way. And he comes back to be a servant in his father's house. He doesn't just come back and says, well, dad, I'm back. I want to start over again. I squandered all your inheritance, but I want to be back in your good graces. Father runs out because, because he knows his son is coming back to be a servant. And so then he makes him a son. And of course Christ talks about the same thing. The called out ministers of the church, the ecclesia, are called out to be servants. But he says, not just servants, but brothers. You know, that we serve together. That we create this camaraderie. So he's talking about virtue and morality and spirituality and uh, all these noble ideas in these parables and how do they apply and hopefully we'll get to some of the ways that could apply in the physical realm but Jesus is is really a social reformer on an individual basis he wants you to turn around and be different think differently act differently live differently and that's, of course, why Christians were singled out and often persecuted. It's because they were different. And they were doing things different. And it made other people feel bad because the way most people were doing things was not a good way. They were Rome had become a socialist imperial state. And it was causing the people to be degenerated and not care about one another and not come to one another's aid and not defend their nation. So, but there were other people that were seeing this, you know, like I I quoted many times, Polybius explains it 150 years before Christ. But Stoics, which uh, created this thing we call Stoicism, you know, people like Zeno of uh, Citium uh, in Athens, about the 3rd century BC, which is even before Polybius, were coming up with a philosophy towards life that would set men free. You know, and according to his teachings as a, as a social being, the path to happiness for humans is found in accepting, in accepting the moment as it, it, it presently exists. You know, it's in the moment. And that's one thing I always say. The kingdom of God is in the moment. You find it in the moment. You're not going to find it in the future. You're not going to find it in the past. You're going to find it in the moment. But he talks about uh, allowing oneself to be controlled by the desire for pleasure or fear of pain is taking away your happiness. You know, what do they say? Uh, a coward dies a thousand deaths, a brave man only one. Because a coward, he's always fearing that he's going to die. And so he dies a little bit with every day he fears. If he can get rid of the fear... You know, then then he is free from that negative aspect of fear. If you forgive pain, and this is something I've explained, I, you know, uh, my own experience. You know, I had injuries because of accidents that occurred that I had premonitions about before the accident occurred. But I learned so much. I mean, I had bones broken. My arm was almost completely broken off. All the bones between my arm and the rest of my body were broken. Concussions, car rolled over on me, third degree burns. Supposed to get skin grafts, all this stuff. In 30 days, I was in the woods hauling pulpwood by hand 
out of the woods, or at least loading it on drays and uh, hauling it out of the woods and going to school at the same time, paying my way for going to school. I got a scholarship, but I also was paying my way through the University of Minnesota, and that's what I did, that and cut Christmas trees and cut firewood and all that other stuff. Thirty days after this horrible, horrible accident, I'm out there doing that. How could I heal? They couldn't believe it. No skin grafts were necessary. Huge, huge spots where skin was gone was healed over. And they couldn't figure out how, how was I healing that fast? They, they, you know, I just had a son who was injured and, and it healed back and the doctor said, this is, this is, a sh- this is a miracle that you healed back so quickly. But I taught my son the same thing about healing. And I, doesn't mean I can heal everything or that you can heal everything using some of these techniques, but the truth is a healing power that can, that actually flows through your life. You stop the truth when you deny the truth. You stop the flow of that energy when you deny the truth. Fear stops the flow of that energy. Acceptance of the pain. Pain is a gift trying to help you heal. But you have to accept it a certain way. Again, what I said in the commercial break is that all roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to Rome. All the roads lead to hell. It's just a question of direction. If you're, if you're resenting evil, if you're resenting pain, if you're resenting, uh, what seems to be a failure and, uh, fighting against it, there will be no healing. But if you accept it in the moment, without complaint, without judgment, without fear, without anxiety, it can actually become a positive effect in your life. And then if you lay down your life for others, not only will you be healed, but others may be healed by that same energy. The same as the woman who touched the garment of Jesus and was instantly healed. She'd been to doctors for years and years and years until all her money was gone. Sound familiar? And then she believes that if she touches his garment, she'll be healed. He feels the virtue go out of him. That's what it says. And she's healed instantly. How, what, what's actually, what is the metaphysical, physical reality going on here? Stoics are especially known for teaching that virtue is the only good. So when it says virtue went out of Jesus, he felt the virtue go out of him. Did he feel the good go out of him? Did he feel an energy go out of him? He didn't become non-virtuous, but he felt this energy, this virtue, that's a very stoic thing to say. He felt the virtue go out of him. He's talking about an energy that flowed out of him and allowed her to be healed. Now, everybody can do this. Almost, you know, every caring mother does it with their small children. You know, let me kiss it, make it better. This is a real thing in healing that people do and they don't even know sometimes it's more subtle and things seem to take a long time to heal but sometimes they heal more quickly sometimes they don't seem to heal at all and we talk about people who are angry all the time that you're allowing you know holding a resentment holding a grudge you're letting it fester in you we call it by terms that we use an infected sore to to refer to an infected sore that's really you're going to manifest that your anger your resentment all these things will have an effect on you physically if you have you know a physical ailment or a cancer or a heart attack it does not necessarily mean that you're a sinner but the more you seek righteousness not just for yourself but for others the more healthy you may become it's part of your emotional psychological spiritual diet so it goes on to say our well we can ask such as health and wealth and pleasure you know this human thing uh are external but only virtue is the only good are not good or bad in themselves these health and wealth and pleasure are not good or bad in themselves but they may be the material for the virtue to act upon and see that's that's what you're here for you have given a, been given a body you've been given flesh you've been given an environment 
and this is your stage through which you can act upon things. So this is what the Stoic was trying to say is that, that, you know, all these things that you're given, wealth, poverty, healthy body, sick body, all these things are opportunities to the Stoic. There are also opportunities to the Christian to turn them around with what you've got and do the best with what you've got. Uh, Aristotle talked about the same thing. There's a, uh, what they call Aristotelian ethics. And the Stoic tradition forms uh, one of the major founding approaches to Western virtue and ethics through that Aristotelian approach to ethics. The Stoic also held that uh, certain destructive emotions resulted from error of judgment. And they believed people should aim to maintain a will that is in accord with nature. But what does that mean, in in accord with nature? We have, you know, I see a lot of people who are talking about, you know, uh, you know, going back to nature and and this is natural and that is not natural. Many of these people really don't understand nature. And one of the ways to get an understanding of nature is to, like, work on a farm or a ranch or even, you know, uh, in agriculture. But animals are a lot more animated and you see what's going on with them. Uh, they actually, you know, I've seen this with animals taking on the personality of their owners because there's a connection being made in that relationship. And those relationships can strengthen or weaken. It can strengthen your animals. It can weaken your animals. It can strengthen you. It can weaken you. It can strengthen your children. It can weaken your children. But to the Stoic, life is this opportunity to experience both good and evil in the moment, accepting, you know, the pain with the pleasure, not striving for either one, but experience each one without resentment, without anger, without judgment. If, if, if Christ said anything, this is one of the things that he was trying to express uh, over and over again. And if you, if you look at the Christian's approach to Stoicism, it's actually rather uh fascinating to see what you know that they're they're talking about uh that uh certain individuals in their uh their approach to uh, you know like I'll, I'll give you an example uh, max stan forth uh in his introduction to the the meditation discussed the profound impact of Stoicism had on Christianity. Because that was that was really a big thing, third century, uh, first century, all the way through. I mean, even Marcus Aurelius was considered a Stoic. And, of course, Christians were persecuted in probably no more valuable philosophy than Stoicism when you're being persecuted by a great power. This is one of the things the identity politics people do not seem to get. Uh, you know, if you're black and you're getting involved in identity politics and they're telling you that you're, you're persecuted and that you're oppressed and, and that it's somebody else's fault for your failure, you should go read Booker T. Washington. Read everything written by him. Because there's a guy who actually was oppressed and rose above it and found those people who oppressed him an opportunity for growth that made him stronger in every sense of the word. And so th- this victim mentality is making you weaker. It's not making you stronger. So, but they talk, you know, like in the uh, fourth gospel, declared Christ uh, to be the logos. Well, that's that's a stoic term, uh, which had long been one of the leading terms of Stoicism, chosen originally for the purpose of explaining how deity came into relation with the universe. The, if you go back to what uh, divine will is, which is something we see in the philosophies that came out of the Middle Ages, and in the Renaissance, they talk about divine will. This divine will is right reason. It's logos. 
It's what actually makes sense. And I talked this morning about opinions. You have an opinion. I have an opinion. But God's opinion is reality. You know, I can say words. You can say words. But God's word is the logos. It is reality. And so you really, when you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you're seeking the logos. You're seeking the reality, the right reason. Uh, in St. Ambrose, uh, Milan's duties, which he published, and Ambrose was not really a Christian. He didn't know anything about Christianity when he was elected the bishop, and he had to take time off to go and actually study it. But he says, the voice is the voice of a Christian bishop, but the precepts are those of Zeno. So he's making reference to this influence of Zeno and Stoicism on Christianity. Of course, Ambrose's form of Christianity had some similarities to the original Christianity, and they could be mistaken, but the essential differences today are really important for you to realize to break the bonds which Ambrose Christianity has created for you. Because you're subject to that rejection, that spirit of rejection, because you have to belong to this church or that church or this religion or that religion. You don't want to belong to any of those because all those religions are a product of opinions of men. The kingdom of God and his church is not a product of an opinion of men. It's a product of of a spiritual reality and principle. So your loyalty, this is why you're you're not to seek the kingdom of God and his church. You're to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And righteousness comes out of right reason. And right reason is just another way of saying the logos. It's you want, you don't want your own opinion of what is good and evil. You want the opinion of God. Now, if you've listened to the first show, you're starting to see where I'm using some of these same words, but I'm using them in a more of a spiritual light. Uh, Klingthes, uh, wishing to give more explicit meaning to Zeno, created what he called creative fire, which goes to the, what I talked about this morning, the divine spark, had been the first to hit upon the term pneuma, which we translate as spirit, to describe it, this, this creative fire, this divine spark, this yod as that we see in the Hebrew, because they're all talking about the same thing, using different words, but we have different people coming along and distorting what it is that they're actually saying. And that's why you have 40,000 different denominations of Christianity alone. I don't know how many different denominations of Judaism you have, but the reality is you know, there's only one logos, there's only one right reason, there's only one reality. And all these... Religions are simply attempts to find it. Unfortunately, that attempt or their intent in in acting upon that attempt is not always pure. And it leads people astray. So it says, like, uh, like fire, this intelligent spirit, this divine spark, was imagined as a tenuous substance akin to the current of air or breath but essentially possessing the quality of warmth. It was imminent in the universe as it was as imminent as God himself. And in man, as the soul of a and life-giving principle, this Yod, this divine spark was present. But again, we can cut it out. We can snuff it out. How do you snuff it out? Anger, judgment, resentment, manipulation, using, abusing, making other people lay down their life for you instead of you laying down your life for others. That's what socialism does. It wants to take away from one class of citizen to provide for another that you think you're a part of. And, you know, rich people often are very advocates of socialism because they think well if we had socialism they'd all be taking care of themselves and I would still be rich and I wouldn't have the responsibility of taking care of them but they're not putting into play that virtue in their own life that gives life 
They're not plugging into the tree of life. Again, I'm I'm going back to the original show, if you didn't hear that. We'll release it on the network in nine days. We will share it with everybody. So if you go and join the network, go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org or hisholychurch.net and join the network. We will release these because we have agreements with other people that we can't release them for so many days. When we release them, you can listen to them all in a row. But clearly, it is not a long step from this to the Holy Spirit. This is what uh, Clintus is writing way back when. The Holy Spirit of Christian theology, the Lord and giver of life, that tree of life. Again, it's all the same thing. Visibly manifested as tongues of fire at Pentecost and ever since associated in the Christian as in the Stoic mind with the ideas of vital fire and beneficent warmth. But if you're looking for the benefit of men who exercise authority, men who take away the life of your neighbor to provide you with the benefits today, taking away the life of your unborn children so that they can provide you with benefits today, if you're going to go that route, you're not going to ever come in contact with that vital fire, that virtue of Christ, that healing uh, tongue of the Logos. You won't become a part of that. Your politics will be the politics of death, not the politics of life. Your relationships with the world and the public affairs that you establish, being covetous, will make you merchandise, curse your children, destroy and damn you and your society. So anyway, that's about as far as we got today. And uh, we'll... We'll do more next time and see if we can take this a little bit farther. Till then, join the network. Peace on your house. May God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.